Let's move on now to the reading and proclaiming of God's word. We are going through the book of Nehemiah. And, uh, you know, if you, if you know a little bit about the Bible, you're like, okay, Nehemiah is about building, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, but it's about more than that, of course. It's about restoring the community and the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And so for this next ap- episode, we're not actually exactly sure when it happened compared to rebuilding the wall. But one reason why it's here is to remind us that God cares more about generosity and justice from his people than about walls and structures. And so the question for us as we hear this passage is, how do we use the resources, the time, the wealth, the status that we've been given? Is God pleased with our use of those things? So follow along as I read all of of chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Now, There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves." And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year of the th- to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there are at my table men, Jews, and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word. Uh, We thank you for your servant, Nehemiah. We pray that we would uh, hear good news in this passage. 
and that you would help us to see how and where we can use the power and status and resources you've given us for the blessing of others and help us to see what Jesus has done for us, how he gave away all things that he might make us his brothers and sisters. We ask this in his name. Amen. So uh, many people in our church community know me as someone who likes to be prompt or on time, if not early. And it's not because I love you or respect you so much or your time. I'm like this with everything. I've mentioned before how intense I can get about traveling, particularly air travel, if we can remember way back when we did that. I can't sleep the night before. I leave ridiculously early. I'm anxious the whole time. I'm sweating. And I, I get to the gate before I do anything else. And I usually still have two hours before the plane departs. Why am I like this? Well, I'm afraid of something going wrong. I'm afraid of the car breaking down. I'm afraid of a security line taking too long. Being stuck in a line that is not moving is terrifying. I do this with anything public. I'm afraid of long lines and overly crowded places, not because I'm claustrophobic. I'm simply afraid I won't be able to enjoy myself or I'll miss out on what I came for. I certainly can't be late to a movie or a concert. I'm afraid I might completely miss it because I'm standing or sitting behind some tall person like you all out there. <laughs> Why am I always early at best, on time at worst? Because I'm afraid. Fear works on each of us in different ways. But I bet we all have these kinds of fears that drive certain behaviors. In fact, our fear can determine how we handle important things in our lives, the way we use our time, the way we use our wealth, the way we use whatever power we have. It can determine how we treat people. And that's what this passage is about. Twice, Nehemiah references the fear of the Lord. When you fear God, you will be careful not to exploit people. You will use money, power, and resources to bless people. If you don't fear God, then it will be much easier to use people to acquire stuff, experiences, wealth, status. If we are grieved by injustice and oppression in this world, then one of the things this world needs more of is fear of the Lord. So that's how we're going to look at this passage. When we fear God, we will not use people to get stuff and experiences, money and power. We will use money and power to help people and bless people. So first, we're going to, that's just two points. First, we're going to look at the problem. We often use people to enjoy stuff or acquire money and power. That's what we see here in this historic situation. Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding region of Judea find themselves in various stages of distress. There was a famine or a food shortage. People were having trouble finding enough food to feed themselves and their families. Others were mortgaging their fields and crops to get money for food or money to pay the Persian Empire's excessive taxes. Sometimes these fields were being confiscated by wealthy lenders when the interest wasn't paid. Even worse, in order to pay these excessive taxes or debts or simply eat, Families were selling their children into slavery to other wealthy Jews. And we've talked about this before, how common this was for average families and small landowners to get caught in this debt spiral and ultimately lose their land and family. This was predatory lending, 
Interest rates were never below 20% APR, usually much higher. And this was a common way for the wealthy and powerful to build up more wealth and power on the backs of others. And Jews were doing this to fellow Jews. They were not helping the poor or vulnerable. They were taking advantage of them in order to build capital in the form of people or land. Nehemiah says in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. So he convenes an assembly and gathers the nobles and wealthy and confronts them. And he starts by saying, hey, look, we're trying to buy back, redeem our brothers out of slavery to the surrounding nations, and you're putting them back into slavery. And then in verse 9, he says, that thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? What Nehemiah is saying is, by doing this, the elite are making Israel look like just like all the other nations. But Israel should be different because their God is different. Most competing uh, creation stories in the Middle East taught that humans were created to do the hard labor for the gods, basically producing the food for the sacrifices. The gods didn't want to do that kind of dirty work. So in that sense, humans were simply labor inputs. There was no love lost between either the gods or humans. So it makes sense that in these societies, it would mirror their creation stories. There will be a hierarchy with kings and nobilities on the top and then lots of slaves on the bottom to do the hard work. Acquiring people and taking their land made sense under this story. It doesn't make any sense, though, under the biblical narrative. We learn in Genesis that God created humans in his image with inestimable dignity to bear his image and bring godly rule to every corner of the earth as his representatives, his vice regents. This makes all humans royalty. You understand that? Every human being is royal because they represent the king. They were to continue his creative work of ordering, organizing, beautifying, fructifying, making productive physical creation. They were to do this in harmony and in loving submission to God, knowing and enjoying him and walking with him all their days. So enslaving people, exploiting people, hoarding wealth and resources, using power to bully people is the exact opposite of God's design for humanity, which is why Nehemiah asks, don't you fear God? Don't you know this isn't what he wants? And he will not sit idly by as it happens among his people who are supposed to show forth a different kind of humanity so that the nations would come to know him? Fearing God means recognizing God will not be mocked. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the Gospels, the letters from the apostles, all are consistent. If you crush the weak and the marginalized, if you turn away from the cries and distress of the poor, you are not hearing God. You are not walking with God. He will not be mocked. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus relates that there was a very rich man dressed in fine clothes who feasted every day. And there was a poor man, a beggar, Lazarus, who was laid at this rich man's gate, and he didn't even get the scraps from the rich man's table. In the course of time, both die. Lazarus goes to heaven. Rich man goes to hell. But he can see Lazarus far off with Abraham. 
And the rich man asks Abraham to get Lazarus to dip his finger in some cool water and to come to him and, and cool his tongue because he's suffering. And Abraham replies, child, remember that in your lifetime, you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Commentators have asked over the years, why does Lazarus have a name and the rich man doesn't? The rich man didn't seem to notice Lazarus during his life, but now he does notice Lazarus, and he's still asking Lazarus to come and serve him. Lazarus was a part of the invisible poor. In paradise, he finally has a name. In hell, the rich man loses his. But the point of the story isn't to build a doctrine of the afterlife. The main idea is that at some point, it will be too late. Now is your chance to notice people. Now is your chance to care for others. Now is your chance to do the right thing, not later. Don't you fear God? And I think to some degree, everyone does. We all have a sense of ultimate justice. It's just that we fear other things more. What do we fear more than God? We fear people. We fear their estimation of us. We fear that we don't fit in or don't fit in high enough. We fear being left behind. We fear missing out. We fear having unmet needs. We fear not having good things for ourselves or our children. We fear our children falling behind. We've all heard what the Apostle Paul says about money that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And, and around here, I don't know many people who actually love money, right? Even in Silicon Valley, which is just like this money-making machine, most everyone knows money isn't something to love. We don't love money. We fear money. We fear it. Money is powerful. And so we fear not having enough. And what will happen to us when we don't have enough? What will happen to our loved ones? And if we fear money, it's impossible to imagine how much they feared it in the ancient world when catastrophe struck all the time. You have to acquire land and people while the getting is good because you never know what's going to happen. You can never have enough money. You always need to get more. And we are more like these ancient Israelites, than we want to admit. We might not love money or status or power, but we are terrified of not having it. And that terror drowns out other loves, other responsibilities, and the fear of God. Nehemiah's point is that worshiping the true God ought to change our values, our values around people, around money, and around power. If we fear God, instead of using people to get money and power, we will use money and power to bless people. That's our second point and final point. Nehemiah adds something interesting to this account. It doesn't necessarily seem to follow. He describes how he provided for himself and did not use his prerogatives as governor to make money off of people. Verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so, 
because of the fear of God. Nehemiah gets it. If you have power, status, money, you don't use it to acquire more. You use it to help and bless people. In this case, Nehemiah uses his own wealth to carry on the functions of governor rather than extracting it from the people. He did not press his rights by law. On the previous occasion of this predatory lending, Nehemiah uses his position of power to get the nobles to give the people and wealth back. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. They all agreed. And so Nehemiah called the priests there so that the men would take a public oath before God to do what they promised. This is the point of power and resources and status to be used for good, for the flourishing of others and the flourishing of creation. And oftentimes that means letting go of it, letting go of power and status and wealth. This is the only reason why we are here, because of what Jesus did. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul goes on to say that because of this, God has exalted Jesus and given him the name that is above every name, so that now he can save everyone and anyone. By relinquishing his power, Jesus' power is perfected and can perfect us. This is our hope, that Jesus gave away his power for our good to save us. So that is what we must do. We have to rethink power and status. And this is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 to his disciples about power and leadership. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Same phrase that Nehemiah used. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The people of God must learn to use power and wealth differently. Not for perks or glory or to make life nice and comfortable for ourselves, but to help others flourish and show forth God's character. Recently, I've gotten the greatest compliment I can get as a pastor. I've actually gotten it twice, two different occasions recently. Different people from our church have said to me, I'm glad I don't have your job. I'm glad I don't have your job. This is my ambition, that when people watch me, they say, I'm glad I'm not him. This is what I want for our elders as well. I don't want anyone saying, why don't I get to be an elder? Why don't I get to be a pastor? I want them to say, Glad I'm not one of those people. Because that will mean we are doing our job correctly. Status and position and power is not for perks or recognition or glory. It is for serving people and the community. People in leadership and people in power are to be poured out. Now, no one needs to feel bad for me 
Because when I pour out for the sake of others, I know Jesus more intimately. I get more Jesus. So it's worth it for me too. But as a leader, I want to be a servant. Like Jesus said, be a slave of all. That's what you are called to if you are a leader. And this is actually one of the things Nehemiah means here at the end of the passage when he says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Sometimes no one sees but God. But if you fear God, then you know God doesn't forget. And when you give yourself away for God, you get him in return, the greatest reward. What's so cool about this is everyone has some power. Everyone has resources, a sphere of influence that can be used for the sake of others. Parents can work to know their kids rather than demanding outward respect and obedience. Students can stand up for the person being gossiped about or picked on rather than staying invisible or advancing socially. Managers can steward the career of those on their team, working to help them grow into their ability and potential rather than simply making their number or getting the project done on time. Voters can prioritize communal fairness and justice rather than their own bottom line. This is what you do with power and position. You don't grasp for more. You don't exploit. You use what you have to bring blessing and lighten the burdens of others. This is the paradigm of creation that the Father set through his son Jesus. This is what Nehemiah did. This must be our aspiration as well. First, as a church, we take care of each other. We share resources so that none of us face humiliating deprivation. We help those in need among us. And then, when there's more left over, we help those in need around us in the South Bay. And I'm, I'm happy to say that in the 13 months since the onset of COVID, March 2020, Gray South Bay has given away $153,000 to people in need in our church and regionally. Over a third of that has gone directly to offset food insecurities locally. Well over 10% of our budget. That's exciting. 18 months ago, we hired Debbie Chang to lead our compassion efforts. We've gotten Mei Chen involved, Javier and the teens are involved. Now we have long-term relationships with various local nonprofits, weekly, monthly, annual events to participate in, all kinds of ways to donate your time and effort. Debbie's done an incredible job. So this giving of money and time is a great start, but God continues to bring this up in Scripture over and over again for a reason. We often, myself included, give out of our surplus. We often try to serve both masters, God and money, or in Silicon Valley, God and time. A few years ago, I was turning on to San Tomas, and I was about to go, but I saw a car coming fast, so I waited for it to zoom by. But there's a guy behind me. He thought I was going, so he rear-ends me. There's a tiny little crease in the bumper uh, of my old Toyota. So we got out of the car. We exchanged insurance information, but I didn't really care. A few weeks later, this insurance adjuster calls me about the damage. Hey, have you taken this in? Do you have a quote to fix it, et cetera, et cetera? What can we do? And I know that getting a new plastic bumper is going to cost well over $1,000 in like a week in the shop and whatever else. I don't want the hassle of having to deal with it. So I told the adjuster, I didn't care. I wasn't going to be fixing it. I don't need any money. Don't worry about it. And he's like, really? I said, yeah. He said, that's the nicest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and I was saying to myself, that's really sad. <laughs> but he is an insurance adjuster, right? So I mean, he has to deal with a lot of stuff every day. 
And then later on, I thought, oh, you know, I could have used that as a witnessing opportunity, right? I could have said, well, I'm doing this in Jesus' name to bless others. But the truth is, I wasn't doing it for Jesus. I was doing it for me. I didn't want to spend the time or deal with the hassle. Oftentimes, our good works come from that kind of place, an emphasis on convenience and surplus, rather than a true love for or fear of God. So listen, God did not call us to a nice, happy, undisturbed, comfortable, upper-middle-class life. That's not what we're called to. Jesus calls us to lose our lives for his sake. And he tells us that if we try to hold on to our lives, we will lose them. Here in this passage, Nehemiah shakes out his garment and he says, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. If you put Nehemiah and Jesus' words together, you get something like this. Empty yourself for God or God will empty you. We need to continue to grow in generosity with our resources, time, wealth, status, connections. There are millions of exploited and oppressed people in the world, some in our country, some even in our region and neighborhoods. God calls us to notice. He calls us to be uncomfortable and sad in the face of injustice and brokenness. He calls us to step into the hard, dark places. Now, we all need warnings but I don't really want you to be motivated by fear and guilt. I want you to be motivated by joy. Because we know now, we we know scientifically, that piling up wealth and titles and status and experiences and trophies, that does not bring lasting happiness or contentment. Building a big wall around our lives to keep bad and inconvenient stuff out does not help us. We know this. We also know that serving and giving away brings much more happiness and contentment to you and then also blessing to others. I want freedom for us, freedom from fear of money, freedom from the fear of other people and their opinions. I want us to be free to give our lives away, and then we get more Jesus when we do that. The nations will notice that. Silicon Valley will notice that. And it starts with us recognizing that Jesus gave himself away for us, to save us from our sin and death. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. We get the bottomless riches of Jesus as we entrust ourselves to him. And when we entrust ourselves to him, by definition we are entrusting ourselves less and less to money, status, career, others' opinions, family success. When we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we get him, the one who loved us so much he would lose everything for us. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. We don't have to clutch and grasp for more. When we open our hands and let go, we get Jesus. Now, you might remember uh, that sermon last week, in the sermon last week where I talked about the guy in the crowd who was a smarty pants armchair philosopher. Well, he's back. And uh, he's in the crowd as Nehemiah is telling the nobles to give back the pledges and the interest they'd extracted from the people. And again, this this guy raises his hand. He's also an armchair economist. Oh, Mr. Nehemiah, I think there's a problem if we just cancel these people's debts. 
Maybe you forgot in your undergrad econ classes, but if we cancel this debt, we create what economists call moral hazard. These people will be incentivized to take even riskier bets and not save because they'll count on being bailed out. We're actually harming them by canceling their debt. And Nehemiah would be like, I'm going to throw you over this wall I just built. <laughs> the Bible addresses laziness and foolishness, particularly in Proverbs. Paul has to deal with it in First and Second Thessalonians. But the Bible puts far more emphasis on generosity and kindness to the poor and powerless rather than protecting ourselves from being scammed and manipulated by the poor and powerless. If you fear God, you are to default to generosity because that is what God has done to you. So you take that with you into parenting, into the office, into the voting booth, into social interactions, into church. Pastor buddy of ours in Oklahoma was uh, at a back-to-school fundraiser hosted by another church, and he met, a, he met the lady running it, and he asked her, how did, how did you get involved with this church and this back-to-school classroom supply drive? And she talked about how she had been a part of the drive for years as a recipient. In fact, she went from church to church seeking assistance. She said she was just using the system because she knew that Christians were these gullible, generous people. And this particular church helped her with rent and bills and food and school supplies for years. Then her husband died unexpectedly, and the church stepped in. She never attended a worship service at all. She had just used this church. But people came, and they brought food, and they stayed with her, and they cried with her. The church helped pay the burial costs for her husband. Several months after he died, the people from the church were still coming by to check on her. And the only time she had ever entered the church sanctuary was for his funeral. She felt guilty. She asked, why were they continuing to help her? She had given nothing in return. Other churches had written her off long ago when they knew she was just playing them. But people from this church said, Jesus never wrote us off. He knew the games we played. He still loved us. He loved us in our mess. And she said that changed everything for her. She wanted to be loved like that, and now she does love like that. That was 10 years ago. The pastor of this church says she's one of the most generous and loving people he's ever met. She runs this back-to-school supply drive, but then she does this other thing on the side. She mows lawns for widows. She's in her late 60s, and she goes around and mows lawns for widows. My buddy actually saw her mowing the lawn of a school a few weeks before. She ended her story by saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and because that, I can love others. Jesus can transform us from being takers to givers. The fear of the Lord can lead us to blessing others and actually having joy with God in Him. Let's pray for that now. God, we're grateful uh, for Your Word for your son Jesus, that he came to dwell among us, that he knew poverty, he knew deprivation, he knew rejection, he knew humiliation for our sake. He took our shame on the cross that we might receive his glory and his status as righteous son. Help us to see this and to believe this. Let it change our lives. Make us a people who are generous and open-handed, 
with everything you've entrusted to us, our time, our abilities, our wealth, whatever sphere of influence we find ourselves in. Help us to bear witness to this coming kingdom of abundance and life and joy. Help us to go with you. And now as we come to this sacrament, enable us to feed on Jesus by his spirit, that we might experience union with him, that we might know that we are yours, adopted into your family. Be with us now as we feast on him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.